Welcome to the Connected Communication Podcast, the show which explores how much of communication is nature and how much is nurture, sharing speaking secrets along the way. I'm your host, Christine Molani. Have you ever been in the middle of a presentation, in full flow, enjoying what you're doing, feeling like the audience is going along with you and suddenly been stopped? interrupted by a question in the audience, a question that you weren't ready for, a question that fires you into fear and panic, a question that feels challenging and makes you think, who is that person asking me that question, feeling like it's a personal attack. This week, I'm talking about how to handle difficult questions in presentations or what can be perceived as difficult questions. I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the reasons people ask difficult questions, about difficult questions and mindset, the perception of questions. And finally, five ways to manage difficult questions. The five ways, of course, aren't exhaustive. There are multiple different ways to manage them. And as I always say, context, relationship, audience, topic, etc., dictates what can be used in terms of these tips and what's, what can't be. That's why it's important to work with somebody when you're giving big presentations so you can tailor the approach to your specific audience. So you're in that audience, somebody's fired a question at you, you weren't ready for it, it interrupted you in the middle of speaking, you're feeling just completely and utterly put out. How dare they? Well, what was the reason they might have asked? There are a number of different reasons people ask what can be perceived as difficult or challenging questions. One of them, often ascribed to people who ask these types of questions, is a big ego. Big egos exist. Sometimes there are people who do just want to upset you, just want to throw you off your game, catch you out. Now this can be leaders and managers at times. It's an unfortunate thing. It's hopefully rarer than it is common, but it does exist. So that's one reason for difficult potential questions. Someone just wants to be the big ego in the room. You may also have an experienced audience. If you're an expert yourself and you're speaking about automating a warehouse, for example, using robotic process automation, or the future of machine learning, or the ethics of gene mapping, you will have an experienced audience. They're going to have their own opinions and thoughts on what you're presenting about. They're likely to ask some pointed questions to get the conversation going. A further reason they may ask questions like that, which could seem challenging or or difficult, is that they want you to prove your expertise. Now, this can be the case if you weren't introduced in a way that created certainty for the audience. If you are a person who's ever introducing somebody in a situation like this, have a listen back to my episode last week, how to introduce a speaker. It's important for the introducer to be able to prove that expertise in a delicate, genuine way for the audience in advance of the speaker coming onto the stage. So if that hasn't happened, you may have to prove your expertise in a little bit more detail for your audience. Another reason can be wanting to understand clearly what was said, needing clarification. 
And this is particularly the case across cultures and different degrees of language proficiency in presentations. The sad and unfortunate thing around the world is that people, um, I say people, many people still don't have the confidence to say in the middle of a presentation, I'm really sorry, but I didn't catch that last part. Could you say it differently? Could you repeat the, the last three words? Could you clarify what you meant by saying? This can show a genuine interest in a topic. That the speaker's ear wasn't used to hearing the words that were spoken, maybe didn't follow the particular terminology, and just wants you to say it again. Because they want to understand and be able to follow the next part of the presentation. In an episode on the 23rd, I'm saying this, and you may be listening to this in a year's time, so in two episodes from now, I'm going to do, I'm going to talk about how to clarify confidently, seeking clarification and offering clarification when we're speaking and when we're listening. This will be in advance of a live masterclass that I'm going to host on how to clarify confidently in English in early June. So do keep an ear out and an eye out on my social media channels or sign up on my website to make sure that you know when that launch is going to go live. I'm very excited. Uh, a further reason, and this is generally why I ask challenging and difficult questions, is because of genuine interest in topic development. So in comparison to needing clarification, a person may ask deeper, more pointed questions because they want to gain more understanding and explore more deeply the topic that is being discussed. In a couple of minutes, I'll talk about how to deal with those types of questioners, particularly me when I keep asking questions. But I'm good. I'm good at stopping. It's important as an audience member to recognize when you've asked too many questions. <laughs> so don't let me give you a negative impression of me now. I do understand when to stop and when to organize to speak to the person later on. Again, I'll share a story about that later. So there you have it. Five reasons why people might ask what can be perceived as difficult questions. And perception is what's key. We often have a mental mouthpiece going on in our minds before we present. And sometimes even when we're presenting. Now you might be thinking, what's a mouthpiece, Christine? Isn't that uh, something for a, an instrument where you put your mouth over it? Yes, it is that. There are a couple of different meanings for mouthpiece. But in Ireland, there, it's a kind of derogatory term. Uh, but I mean, it's not that nasty. Well, it's nasty enough. Basically, you might hear somebody saying, oh, she's a mouthpiece, that one. Don't tell her anything. Or the same about a fella or a, a man. He's a mouthpiece, that fella. Don't believe anything he says. So a mouthpiece is somebody who talks about usually other people in the negative or maybe shares stories about them, says things about them that may or may not be true. So what's that mental mouthpiece? It's the inner chatter. It's the voice in our minds. That default network chatting away to us about fear, about failure, about the great unknown, challenging our self-belief, making us focus on past and future possibilities. This is where we ruminate. It's not a bad thing. It's a key part of our network and the place that most of the time our brains are in. But when we allow it to take over, 
it can often lead to a fixed mindset. When we think about fixed and, and growth mindset, this is the work of Carol Dweck, whom you've probably heard of. What we could consider when we think about perception of difficult questions and the fixed or growth mindset is us creating a problem for ourselves before we even go onto the stage or into the meeting room. So before the presentation, with a fixed mindset, we might say things to ourselves like, am I able to do this? I don't have the same level of expertise. Whereas with a growth mindset, we might say, I'm not sure I can do this, but I'm going to do it. I can't learn if I don't try. So we have the mental myth piece, challenging our perception of what questions might be, telling us that they might be too difficult for our expertise or for us to be able to manage them. And actually, really, they're just questions. There can also be a perception that we're not aware of. Automatic response. What's been nurtured in us over time. Our brains are naturally wired to keep us safe, to keep us running away from threat and towards reward. It's why when fires start, we don't go towards them, we run away from them. We want to keep ourselves safe. Nowadays, there are so many different things in the world that create threat responses. And sometimes, depending on our automatic responses, somebody interrupting us in the middle of a presentation or asking a difficult question we may not have been ready for, can trigger us into a threat response. If we don't know how to manage that threat, it can result in us becoming overwhelmed, feeling panicked, incapable of answering the question, or worse, getting defensive. We want there to be just enough threat to stimulate the adrenaline to act, but not so much that it becomes overwhelming or creates a dysregulation. Amy Arnston talks about there needing to be the right balance of chemicals, the stress hormone noradrenaline and the interest hormone dopamine in the brain to get the balance perfectly right for us to act and behave in ways that will allow us to achieve our optimal performance. I first started hearing about optimal performance levels in a book during my master's that I found while I was browsing the library one day. At the time, I had multiple different projects to put in. We did live projects for companies, had to do company visits. I was doing active research for my thesis, lots of different things all at the same time and feeling quite stressed about it. I also went to the gym five times a week, so I was a bit of a fitness freak. And then I saw this lovely neon shining light on the shelf, on the shelf of the library with the words, the mind gym. And I got very excited. And you might laugh at me thinking I got very excited at a book called The Mind Gym. Each to their own. Of course, I was very excited. This was something that was going to teach me how to manage my mind and my performance levels in a way that I had never understood before. So I took it down, opened it up. And as I was reading through it, I learned about the stress curve. And this was developed by two guys called Yerkes and Dodson. It's called the Yerkes and Dodson Law, I believe. Isn't it great to get things that, and I, I don't mean to insult the researchers here, right, but to things that are just simply applicable to life when you pay attention to how you operate, called a law after you because you did the research to find it out. I think it's pretty cool. 
so basically what it is is the law of optimal performance there is a particular stage that we can be in which creates optimal performance they call it the stretch stage so this is why people are always saying to you push yourself out of your comfort zone um you can push yourself out of your comfort zone all right but if you push yourself out of your comfort zone into your strain zone well then you're going into a place where you're into highest stress level and you're likely to either move towards burnout or not be able to answer these difficult questions why is that because what's optimal for one is not optimal for another so it's important to know yourself your optimal level of performance and what, whom, or how your triggers are pulled. And this is the third point when I talk about mindset and perception of challenging questions. Communication comes naturally, just not the same communication for everyone. No two brains are the same. A quote that will be embedded in my memory forever by the Neuroleadership Institute when I was doing my brain based conversation skills training. Different people hear, see, perceive the world in different ways. Different brains have different capacities to hear, perceive and see the world. For more on that, go to the turn-taking episode and listen to what I say about it. Being aware of what triggers us and allows us to dampen our threats can help us to manage this balance of chemicals and stay in our optimal performance levels when speaking on a stage and when asked difficult questions. There are a couple of different models from the Neuroleadership Institute based on neuroscience research and a lot of different research being combined, which I use with my clients to help them understand their triggers and threat responses. Once we get an understanding of them for ourselves, we can then predict or I'm not going to say presume, but get an understanding of the different drivers of people that we work with or people that we might be presenting to. One of those models is called the SCARF model. The S stands for status. The C stands for certainty. The A stands stands for autonomy. The R stands for relatedness. And the F stands for fairness. Put together, it's a scarf that we can wear around our necks. Rather than go into too much detail about this, I'll hold it, I think, for a future episode. But very briefly, those five key areas have been found to drive human behavior. I talked earlier on at the beginning about the ego tripper, the person who needs the status in the room. I talked as well about certainty. Maybe you needing to prove yourself to the audience because they don't feel certain about your capacity to perform. I talked about you possibly becoming defensive when you may not understand how to balance those emotions inside you. That can be a question of your autonomy, not being able to do something. If you don't find a way to engage your audience and get responses for them, there can be a dampening of your relatedness. You haven't found a way to connect. And if you're constantly interrupted, asked challenging questions, or maybe not given the time that you were supposed to be given to speak, you may feel a sense of unfairness. Understanding yourself, which are your key drivers, 
can help you then to preempt before you go into the presentation what you might need to deal with and how it might come up. I do a lot of work with the scarf with my clients, particularly in cross-cultural communication in big organizations. Trigger management is, for me, communication 101 when we're doing coaching. So what then can we do when we receive challenging questions in a presentation? Well, first of all, we can manage the audience. Inform them when you'll take questions. So in advance, actually, you can hear me do an example of this in the when introducing a speaker episode last week that you get the person who introduces you to actually comment on when you will manage questions. But if they don't or if you don't have somebody introducing you, you may need to address this at the beginning of your presentation. So something like. I'll be delighted to answer your questions throughout. I'll give pause at the end of each of my slides and each of my key points to encourage any comments or questions you may have. If you don't want to do that, um, and if, particularly if time is tight as well, you may want to say to them, given that we have a very short period of time together today, I'll ask you to hold your questions until the end. Please do take note throughout as I speak. It may also be possible that I will answer them as I'm speaking. So you've kind of covered yourself there in two bases. Now, if you're a highly experienced speaker, if you're feeling very confident in yourself, you can also ask the audience when they'd like you to take the questions. Now, I do this. I'm big on engagement and empowering an audience to feel that they manage my talk when I present and speak, but also because it gives a sense of, let's go back to that scarf model, autonomy. It can also give status if people in the audience need to feel status. You might connect better with the audience, increasing relatedness as well. And given that you're giving them permission to make a decision when they question you or not, you can increase certainty. It gets buy-in stops interruptions and can often manage interruptions when you do this because you've asked everybody when they'd like to they'd like you to take questions you may have a short discussion about it as a group before you actually present some people might say well I'd prefer if they were at the end others might say I'd like to interrupt and ask and you find a consensus agreement amongst the group this is very good for dealing with high status people the second thing you can do is preempt your questions. And what do I mean when I say preempt? I talk a lot about preemptive communication. I've talked about it once or twice before on the podcast. There's a, an audio on it in my masterclasses platform. And I tend to cover it with private clients because it's quite unique to individual situations. But preempting is important because you're prepared. I think about it like an interview. Or if you were interviewing someone, say to mind your child or your dog or your house, you would preempt what was potentially going to come up in the conversation, wouldn't you? You'd prepare questions to ask them in advance. You'd do your bit of research. You'd make sure that you were able to answer their questions. It makes sense, no? But why preempt? Well, it means that you're ready. You can have the answers in your talk or your presentation. So as you're speaking, because you've preempted the most difficult and challenging questions, you tick the boxes for the audience, meaning that they don't need to ask them. 
if you've missed something or they ask a more detailed question and you have the information ready, you can click back and forth between different slides using hyperlinks inside the presentation. So say you expect to be asked about future projections for a particular project. You can prepare a report with a little graphic. Having your future predictions, put a little hyperlink inside one of your slides and be able to just click forwards and then click back. And you're back into the presentation. What does this do? It increases your credibility and your position as an expert. And going back to the scarf, creates certainty in your audience. The most important part of presentation preparation is speaking to your audience's objective, not to yours. If you preempt well, you can weave responses throughout the talk using phrases like, uh, I imagine you're wondering how much this is going to cost. Or, I imagine you're thinking that this is going to make a large dent in your bottom line. When you say things like this, watch their bodies and their eyes, then hit them with your preempted reality, your answer to that thinking. But I can't think of any questions to preempt. I don't know what questions they might ask me. I've never done this before. Use ChatGPT to help you. Don't put any confidential information in it or get a trusted peer to pre-interview to pre-interview you when you practice the presentation on them. You can also, of course, work with somebody like me. Sneaky plug for my coaching. I'm somewhat of a task mistress when it comes to asking difficult questions during presentations, as I said before. But I'm in the fifth category. It's genuinely because I'm interested. I want to know more. When we work together, that's not necessarily the case. I might just break your balls if you're male or breasts if you're female. And what I mean when I say break your balls or break your breasts is challenge you intentionally to put you under that little bit of noradrenaline pressure that creates that stress response so that you've dealt with it with me before you have to deal with it in reality. Number three, or a third thing that you can do when you're managing difficult or challenging questions is invite a follow-up. So again, like I said, like me, some people want more. It would be lovely to think that you had two hours to sit there and talk to an audience and answer the person who wants more's questions all the time, but you can't. There has to be equal balance given to the rest of the audience. And the reality is in business meetings and in pitches and talks like this, you don't have time to sit down and chat it out. So what do you do? Set up a follow-up call or even just a coffee chat. And then you can build your network at the same time. In the follow-up call, if it's going to be a serious one, schedule it during your work times, make sure that it's, it's formalized. But if it's just a coffee and a chat, then organize it as appropriate. And as I say, you're building your network. I did this recently. I had an incredible opportunity to join a three-day training event on negotiation and uh, something called the Culture Active Profiling Tool gifted to me by a mentor of mine, which I was extremely grateful for. It led me to meet a number of different experienced people from particularly across the States in the field of culture negotiation and different types of development in organizations. And while they were sharing one of the presentations, I asked a question about 
about neuroscience and cultural profiling on the tool that we were discussing. As the tool I found fantastic, I'm going to become a trainer in it. But for me, it was it was missing my my love, my joy, the neuroscience, the scarf kind of model behind it. So I asked the question, as I do, which was somewhat challenging. One of the experts from the group was called over to answer the question. But because we didn't have time and it was hybrid online and in-person training, what did he do? Exactly what I've just suggested. I was gifted with a conversation with a veteran of personality profiling tools who was more than willing to discuss my distaste for them, as well as converse about how they can help generate conversation, which is ultimately the goal when training into new behaviours and new beliefs, particularly across cultures in organisations. So invite a follow-up. Another thing to do is to collect your thoughts. The fourth way to manage when questions are challenging or difficult. Often, people feel the need to instantly respond before structuring their thoughts. A communication culture, in other words, nurturing, impacts this. In many cultures, pausing indicates a lack of knowledge. Speakers often fear being judged negatively for pausing. But pausing confidently creates authority. And if you're, you're listening to me saying that and you're scoffing, telling me not to be talking crap, firstly, you can go and listen to the Pause is Powerful episode. But if you want to find somebody else's authority on this, go check out the Winston Churchill pause or watch some of Barack Obama's speeches. Even go to Martin Luther King's. Look at any of the great orators of our time and past times. You will see that they use pause to create authority. You can use phrases to inform of the pause if you're really not comfortable with silence. So you're asked a challenging or difficult question. Oh, good one. That's, that's a question I hadn't anticipated. Let me collect my information on that. And when you say collect your information, and I'm doing this as I record the podcast, turn your hand a little bit as if you're a conductor of an orchestra. And as you're turning your hand, move it up, move it up to draw it towards your brain. So by saying, let me collect my information and drawing your hand in a circular motion towards your brain, you're actually giving them a visceral visual effect. They're imagining you drawing or pulling your ideas and your information together inside your mind. And that gives you time to think. Collect those thoughts. Pause. And give the answer. When we create quiet in the mind, the lower conscious, the subconscious, the place where actually most of our processing is done, has the opportunity to fire off the synapses and connect things to give us the response. You can also make the audience part of your thinking. Ask questions back, pose thoughts or comments back to them, lead them with you towards the response. Now that can take a bit of expertise, so it helps to hone this kind of technique in advance. The fifth and possibly most important thing to do when understanding how to handle difficult or challenging questions in a presentation is to manage your triggers or manage your emotions. If someone interrupts, don't challenge them. 
show respect where respect is due to your audience. If you feel the fire, take a deep breath. If you still feel the fire, take another one. Sometimes three might be necessary. And three has been shown to help us reconnect the vagus nerve and calm our emotions down. Be mindful in the moment. Now, I'm not telling you to go and put your feet up on the table, cross-legged and start meditating. But being mindful in the moment means understanding what tones of voice, mannerisms and questions are likely to trigger you. When you're mindful in the moment, understanding them, you can experience them for what they are. And this is the direct experience network. In opposition to the narrative network I mentioned earlier on, it's the part of the brain that just takes us into the here and now. When we start to do that, we realize "Mm, it's not a personal attack. Maybe the person didn't understand me fully. Maybe they're genuinely interested. Even if they're trying to challenge me, I know what I'm talking about. This is an opportunity for me to demonstrate my expertise. They are, after all, just questions. The moment you give in to your emotions is the moment you hand your power and authority away. In most cases. Now, I'm not saying to trigger or sorry, I'm not saying to repress your emotions here. How emotions are engaged with across different cultures differs. Some cultures may in fact need you to become emotional in your response. So they know what you're invested in and that you're invested in what you say. For the most part, in English-speaking cultures, it's not expected that you would get angry in response to a question. Again, if you're well-practiced and confident in your knowledge and your expertise, you can label a very challenging question. That diffuses its power. It's like when you feel an overwhelming emotion. Oh, I feel angry right now. As soon as we label that emotion, we dampen it because we've perceived it for what it is. Oh, I'm angry. Oh, oh yeah, that's okay. I'm angry. There it is. But when you're labeling a challenging or difficult question and diffusing it, oh, now you got me on that one. I might have to look that up. That's a tricky one. That's a difficult one. That's a challenging one. I might have to look it up. I might have to check it down to rejig my memory. If you have the internet, look it up there and then. Bring it up on a big screen. Sometimes a simple one-liner at the top of Google, or whatever search engine you use, is enough to spark a synaptic firing and jog your memory. Now you might be thinking, no, I can't do something like that. I would completely lose face. I'd lose my expertise. Maybe that's why I say all the time that context is key. You can't do this in every situation. But I, I say you can't do this in every situation. Right? You can't because you don't have time necessarily. There's a lot of money at stake. You may only have seven minutes or 12 minutes or whatever it is to perform. But if, if there's billions on the table and someone asks you a question and you know that it, in two seconds you can find a line on a social me- or on a, a search engine that's going to jog your memory on something that you know you can answer that will potentially allow them to understand why the deal is viable more quickly, then I would consider that two seconds and how costly it might be to look it up or to not look it up and walk out of that room without the deal. 
we have a, a saying in Ireland for when we forget something in the moment, because we all forget things in the moment, right? Somebody says something or you're in the middle of a conversation and you want to add something and then poof, the brain doesn't give it to you. Hang on, hang on. It'll come to me. As soon as we say it'll come to me, we stop thinking about it. We stop talking about it. We move on to the next point. Usually within a minute. Oh, yeah, I remember now. When we stop forcing the brain to think about things, we reduce the pressure on the brain and pop, we remember. So if you really don't want to search something on Google or potentially lose face by having to look it up, you can, again, being confident in yourself, in your position, in your expertise, say something like, my brain has frozen on the question you have just asked me. I know I have the answer inside, but it won't come to me right now. Can I take another question? And I'm sure when I'm answering the other question, the answer that I need to give you will come back. And then answer the other question. And as you're answering it, it's likely the other response will come back. If not, put yourself in behind the plinth or the desk somehow and Google while you're answering the other question. <laughs> That's a sneaky little trick, but you need to be very well able to manage your uh, habit network there and distract your mind from not being able to focus on the question while you look something up. It's a bit sneaky, I know. It's doable, but like I say, you have to be well practiced. So there we have five techniques that you can use to handle difficult questions. Before I, I finish off, let me just add another thought here. Make sure to close with care. Once you've answered all questions or held others for a follow-up, re-summarize before closing. This ensures that you end on a high note and allows you to remind them of the answers you've provided, which can help them make a decision and remind them of your expertise. Managing difficult questions, just like all aspects of presentation, public speaking and communication, is a skill which can be learned and once learned, can become an art. When I worked in premier customer service for Vodafone and later on the lines with Toll Priority in Australia, I used to love getting challenged by customers. I had a strange sort of pleasure from turning a disgruntled customer around. It's the same pleasure that I have when a client has worked with me on a presentation or a pitch or a tour and then come back and landed the deal, or better, got the promotion. Managing difficult questions can become an art, an art that you can enjoy engaging in. It all depends on your mindset and your preparation. As always, thanks for listening. If you have a question, a thought, or a query based on what I've talked about today, Please check the show notes to see if I've added the option to send me an audio yet. And if not, find me on social media at the links in the show notes. Send me a DM and let's have a chat. Please follow, subscribe, star or review the podcast if you've enjoyed it. It really helps the rankings. If you can think of a friend or somebody else that would learn or, or may benefit from the podcast, please also share it. Until next time. Vanity, August Breakers.